0: On to my mommy's podcast. This episode is brought to you by Alatura Naturals Skincare. You guys loved the founder, Andy, when he came on this podcast to talk about his own healing journey after a tragic accident caused massive scarring on his face. From this experience, he developed some, some of the most potent and effective natural skincare options from serums and masks and a lot of products in between. The results are super visible on his perfectly clear skin that is free of scars. I personally love the mask and I use it a couple times a week and I often use their gold serum at night to nourish my skin while I sleep. All of their products have super clean ingredients and they really work. Andy is absolutely dedicated to creating the highest quality products possible and it shows. You can check them out at allaturanaturals.com forward slash wellness mama and use the discount code wellness to get 20% off. So again that's Alatura Naturals. So A-L-I-T-U-R-A-N-A-T-U-R-A-L-S dot com forward slash wellness mama and the discount code wellness to save 20%. This podcast is sponsored by Thrive Market, a company that I have known and loved since its very beginning. The goal of Thrive Market is to make real food affordable for everyone, and now they help their half a million members, including me, get organic foods that we love delivered to our door for less. Think of it as an online combination of Costco and Whole Foods with tons of organic, allergy friendly, paleo, vegan, keto, and other options. Their annual membership earns you free gifts and guaranteed savings. And this is one of my favorite parts. An annual membership that you pay for also sponsors a free membership for a family in need. So you'll get 25 to 50% off top brands. And as a tip, I always look at the new Thrive Market brand products that provide an even bigger discount on their 500 plus high quality products. You can check out all of their products and save an additional 25% on your first order by going to thrivemarket.com forward slash WM. So that's thrivemarket.com forward slash WM for wellness mama. And if you're already a member, still go to thrivemarket.com forward slash WM and check out because Thrive often runs deals of the day and gifts with purchase. So even if you're already a member, you can often get free products when you shop on certain days. So always keep an eye out for those and always check out the new deals at thrivemarket.com forward slash WM. Hello and welcome to the Wellness Mama podcast. I'm Katie from wellnessmama.com and I'm here today with a friend of mine who has been here before and I know you're going to love to hear from her again. Hannah Kroom, aka the Kombucha Mama, pioneered Kombucha Camp, which is an educational workshop. It started in 2004 out of her Los Angeles kitchen. Now with her husband Alex, they've created kombuchacamp.com, spelled with a K, the top educational site with a mission to change the world one gut at a time by providing quality information, quality cultures, and quality customer support around all things fermented. She's also a popular speaker about kombucha fermentation and sapiens. And through Kombucha Camp's videos, blog posts, and online support communities, and their award-winning Amazon bestseller, The Big Book of Kombucha, they service mentors and leading experts in the world of kombucha to millions all over the world. So Hannah, welcome and thanks for being here.
1: Thanks for having me, Katie. Great to be back.
0: Oh, it's always great to chat. And I today want to go kind of deep on several different topics and tackle the most common questions I get because I have a, a big blog post about kombucha. I have made it myself for years. I got my kombucha scobies from you guys and I get several questions over and over and I figured there's no one, literally no one in the world more qualified to answer these questions than you. So to start off with a controversial one, walk us through what's the deal with kombucha and alcohol? Because I know there was the drama with Lindsay Lohan. There's the, can you buy them in the store with an ID or without? And the actual real issue of how much alcohol is in kombucha. So take us through the whole story.
1: Absolutely. So kombucha is a fermented food, There are other fermented foods we think of like sauerkraut and beet kvass and yogurt. We don't necessarily associate those fermented foods with alcohol content. And then, of course, we think of beer and wine and all those other fun, recreational, higher alcohol content beverages. Well, all fermented foods create trace amounts of alcohol as a preservative. So one of yeast's unique characteristics and competitive strategies is to create alcohol, which is naturally antimicrobial, right? Think about when you get a wound and you might grab the rubbing alcohol and rub that on your wound. It stings a little bit, but that alcohol is killing potential pathogenic organisms. And that's how we, you know, sort of clean a wound if we're using rubbing alcohol. So alcohol has this naturally antimicrobial aspect to it. So what this means is that all fermented foods create trace amounts of alcohol as a means of preventing molds and other pathogens from colonizing their delicious substrate. So substrate in the case of sauerkraut would be cabbage or uh, milk in the case of yogurt. In kombucha, our substrate is sweet tea. So we're taking tea and sugar, we're adding our SCOBY, that's our bacterial cellulose patty, also called a mother or a baby. And that stands for symbiotic culture of bacteria and yeast. And so the yeast and bacteria are working together to create this delicious beverage. And the alcohol is a key component to that because it's a defense mechanism and it's a strategy for preventing mold from growing. Now, Why doesn't kombucha end up like beer or wine with a much higher alcohol content? You know, typically we're seeing 4% and higher in beer, typically 4% to 8% if you're going for a craft beer. In wine, we see upwards of over 10% alcohol by volume. And that's because kombucha is an acetic acid ferment like vinegar. So you may have noticed sometimes when you drink kombucha, there's a little bit of that tangy flavor to it. What's happening is the ethanol created by the fermentation process is then converted into those healthy organic acids. And those acids help with digestion. They help with metabolism. They help with supporting a healthy liver. And so... As much as Lindsay Lohan, and there was also a football player a couple years ago, want to blame their kombucha consumption for um, triggering their alcohol bracelets, the reality is um, that when people drink kombucha and they take breathalyzer tests, there is no alcohol remaining uh, in their system because it's metabolized quickly by the B vitamins and acids present in the brew.
0: That makes sense. And I love that you mentioned the B vitamins and the acids that are present in kombucha and in fermented products in general. I'd love if we could talk a little bit more about those because I know, like, as we find out more about the gut, we understand just how many, like, there's this huge variety of gut bacteria, and we obviously need all these different kinds. And most people understand that pretty well. But a lot of people think of just fermented foods equal probiotics, but there's a lot more going on there. So, can you walk us through what are some of the other amazing things happening in Fermented foods like kombucha or any fermented foods.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, to your point, probiotics, when we think of the word pro, for, bio, life, that's exactly what probiotics are doing. They are supporting life, they are elements or nutrients or organisms that help the body thrive. Now, we don't have a standardized definition of probiotic in the United States, but there's an old list from a while ago of organisms that are on this short list of what's considered probiotic. Now the problem with that is as you mentioned, you know, oftentimes there are organisms that we find in fermented foods which have traditionally been what human beings have consumed as, you know, probiotics before anyone knew you could try to stuff them into a pill or anything like that since the dawn of time. And by consuming these organisms in a living form, these nutrients in a living form, hey, guess what human beings are? We're in a living form. And so when we consume those things that also match our bio-identical to what our, our human body needs... There's uh, an uptake system that allows us to intake those nutrients far quickly and far more efficiently than if we're consuming them in a synthetic form. And to your point about the human microbiome and all of the research that's you know gone on in the last almost a decade, it's surprising to me that we haven't taken the opportunity to update that list. Because I think the key factor that we're learning out of all of this research is, first of all, we don't know... <laughs> the half of what we're looking at that, you know, it's uh, the more, you know, the less, you know. And the other thing that we're really seeing is that the key component is diversity. And what this speaks to is the fact that as long as we've, you know, for many years, since the 1800s, you know, since germ theory became uh, a common theory, we've been waging germ warfare. And on a certain level, that was due to a lack of understanding of the role of bacteria in the human body. And so what we understood was, oh, well, here's a germ. It causes a disease or an illness or an ailment. Let's kill germs and then therefore eliminate this disease or ailment. Unfortunately, what we've seen is the rise of superbugs as a result of trying to kill them off. And and this is because bacteria are incredibly responsive. Um, And we are bacteriosapiens, right? So not only do they live inside of our body in our microbiome, they live on the surface of our body. They live on the surface of everything. Like literally, I'm so sorry, germophobes, but (laughs) there is bacteria everywhere. And our human body would not be able to function if we didn't have those organisms helping us to uptake nutrition. Interestingly enough, this is very similar to how Um, the roots of plants work. You know, they're in the ground and it's the bacteria in the soil that allows the nutrients to be absorbed by the plants. And so our gut is essentially our soil. And we need to be putting really healthy nutrients into that soil so that our plant can flourish. And diversity is key. And the reason I bring this up is because people will talk about candida and candida overgrowth, right? So it's not that Our body doesn't contain candida. In fact, it does naturally. It's when that candida is allowed to over-proliferate into an out-of-balance situation that we have a problem. And so the reason I bring this up is to remind people that sometimes we may have, or we might find in different populations, things that we would normally consider pathogens. However, they're present in a quantity, in a balanced environment such that they're actually producing a positive net result for the host Versus if that organism were out of balance and therefore creating a negative effect. All of this is to say that we need to be eating fermented foods on a regular basis. And the great news is, is that they come in so many different varieties and flavors that you don't have to feel like, oh, well, kombucha is too sour. I don't like that. Oh, sauerkraut smells like stinky socks. We have yogurt, we have water kefir, we have coconut water kefir, you know, there's all these miso, tempeh, there's all these different types of fermented foods that have this positive effect on our body and getting a wide variety of them is what's going to support our organism best. Because honestly, we don't know exactly what it is we need to put in our system.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I think you brought up such an important point, like you said, that crosses across the board in our life, which is that aspect of diversity. And I think that's one of the downsides of, I mean, there are many, but one of the downsides of the quote unquote standard American diet is that it's not varied. It's not diverse. It's the same foods over and over without um, exposure to other foods, other bacteria. And that's something that's shifted for me, even in the last couple of years is realizing just how much our bodies need diversity in movement, diversity in food, diversity in everything. So we don't adapt to something. So I actually now try not to do anything every single day, not any movement every single day, not any supplement every single day. And to really focus on eating a very diet and throwing in as many, you know, different herbs and plant species and different things that we can to serve our gut bacteria and also our micronutrient levels and and all that. And I think another wonderful way to do that and I bet you would agree is, you know, to garden, to expose yourself to bacteria in the soil, to have pets that bring in bacteria, but like you said, not to be afraid of those germs. And I love that you brought up candida because this is another question I get quite a bit on the blog on that post about how to make kombucha. And I think there's a lot of confusion, like you touched on, when it comes to kombucha and people who have candida, especially candida overgrowth and if they should or should not drink kombucha. So from your research, what's your take on kombucha and fermented products and candida?
1: Absolutely. And I think the confusion comes from, again, people hear the word yeast And they don't understand or, you know, we just haven't worked with yeast on a regular basis to understand that there's different types of yeast and how they reproduce are differently and their functions are different. And so just like, you know, germ warfare, where we think, oh, all bacteria are bad, people will think, oh, all yeasts are bad, especially candida and candida overgrowth. And so if you consume anything with yeast, that's going to be a problem. Um, The reality is in the natural world, like controls like. So what that means is good bacteria hold bad bacteria in check and good yeast hold bad yeast in check. And the thing about kombucha and candida, there's a couple of factors going on. First of all, if you're buying it from the store, commercial producers obviously understand that the American palate is on the sweeter side. And so rather than just hit the market with a bunch of sour power, which I really love, um, people have chosen to have lighter profiles for kombucha, sweeter profiles for kombucha. And sometimes if you're drinking a commercial kombucha, it could be that it does have more sugar than if you were making a home brew at home. And therefore, it could potentially be activating the candida. So the first thing is to consider what Kombucha, are you consuming? If you're making a home brew and you're a candida suffer, the nice thing is, is you have the opportunity to allow that ferment to go a little bit longer. More of the sugars are converted into the healthy acids, and it might have a tangier flavor on your tongue. Well, when you go to consume that type of kombucha, it starts to clear out the bad guys, and so sometimes it gets worse before it gets better, and and you know a healing crisis. Is something that only an individual can ascertain for themselves if that's what's happening in their body. I mean, think about it. Nobody else lives in your body and you can describe symptoms till you're blue in the face and you'll still have a doctor say, okay, it's all in your head or something like that. Unfortunately, we've seen that far too often. And so really you need to be the steward of your own temple. You need to be paying attention to your own body and our motto, trust your gut. Is all about teaching you how to close those feedback loops Um, by paying attention to what you're consuming and how it makes you feel. So Candida is a great example of this, right? The organisms in your body crave sugar and they demand you consume sugar. And you think, oh, I, I want sugar. So you have some sugar. And in the moment, maybe it feels good. It tastes good, whatever. But soon thereafter, you have a rash, you have an infection, you're itchy, you have all these awful symptoms, you feel bloated, you feel gassy. Okay, that's your body communicating to you saying, hey... I know those organisms demanded sugar, but you know what? It's not having a positive effect. And so closing that feedback loop is starting to pay attention, not just to how things are on your taste buds, but how they actually manifest in your physical body and then connecting those two. And, you know, we have this amazing DNA wisdom um, and this amazing ability to know what nutrients our bodies need instinctually. The problem is, as I'm sure you know, and as you already brought up standard American diet, we're exposed to so much advertising, so much, you know, they subsidize corn, wheat, and soy. And this is why we end up with every variation of corn, wheat, and soy under the sun. And unfortunately, we're seeing, you know, even folks who are choosing more vegetables or more of a vegetarian or vegan type of lifestyle, unfortunately, those processed foods end up being far worse for you than if you were to just eat a well-rounded diet of, um, you know, more diverse inputs. And so, It's really fascinating to see how all of this impacts our body. But back to our point about candida, making your own kombucha at home, you might go through a die-off period. Typically, it's about 10 days to two weeks. But again, only you know if it's a die-off versus this is creating an issue and I need to not consume kombucha in this moment, switch to a milk kefir, switch to a coconut water kefir instead, and then reintroduce kombucha when your biome is more balanced.
0: Got it. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And I think like you said, anything, it's about the amount, it's about understanding your body. There's a lot of factors that go in. And on that note, another area that comes up a lot in the questions, and I think it also does have that aspect of like knowing your body. And in this case, I would say also like talking to a practitioner, but is the issue of can women consume kombucha while pregnant or nursing? And I know part of that is a complicated answer because alcohol is typically considered taboo when pregnant. And we've already mentioned there are trace amounts of alcohol, but I also know that there are um, ways that it can very much be fine. So can you speak to the kombucha while pregnant and nursing question?
1: Again, it goes back to trust your gut, right? I've had friends who loved kombucha, got pregnant, couldn't stand the smell of it. That's your body saying "Not for me right now. I've had other friends who said they craved it all through their pregnancy. It helped with morning sickness because of the trace amounts of B vitamins. It helped with the constipation because it aids in digestion, um, alleviating stress, things like that. So... There's a lot of folks who have experienced positive outcomes as a result of consuming kombucha while pregnant, and the trace amounts of alcohol, just to be clear, are not intoxicating. You know, we're talking about anywhere from, you know, 0.2 percent up to 2 percent ABV. It, when they ended prohibition back in the 1930s, they said that 4 percent alcohol by volume was considered non-intoxicating for an adult. And so we're talking about levels that are half that, or less than half that, often comparable to a piece of fruit. And the reason I bring this up is because I think we hear, again, we hear a word and we freak out, ah, yeast, ah, bacteria, ah, alcohol. When the reality is that humans have consumed alcohol medicinally, again, since the dawn of time, because it was one of the few things that had the power to extract nutrients as a solvent and pass those on to the consumer. And in fact, in other countries, we'll hear about, you know, the woman gives birth and they hand her a glass of beer so that she can start uh, releasing her, her milk uh, more easily. And so I think there's also a cultural construct around alcohol that, um, again, we take to that sort of black and white type of thought process that isn't entirely accurate. And so same thing, a woman who's nursing can enjoy kombucha and children love kombucha. Babies can drink kombucha. It's remembering that this isn't a magic potion. It's a food. It's a food with nutrients in living form. Um, And, you know, there there are foods that aren't appropriate for babies to consume at certain ages. Uh, But for example, kombucha has been used to help babies with colic. Um, There are several different uh, papers and studies and anecdotal information talking about in Russia colicky babies were given kombucha and it helped settle their stomach, something that we often don't even understand what the root cause is. However, when we go to help aid aid their digestion with a little bit of kombucha, probably diluted with water, we find that it can have a positive outcome. And so again, trust your gut is about trusting your gut, but it's also observing the behavior of your children when you give them kombucha and seeing how are they responding to this brew. Are they having a negative uh, reaction or are they having a positive reaction? And now observe them when you give them soda or juice and see what types of reactions you're getting there as well.
0: I think that's great advice again across the board of learning to listen to your own body because that's so true and it can apply to anything, not just kombucha. Like our kids or we can have reaction to any food or anything in the environment. So I think that's one of the skills that all of us would be well served to continue cultivating because like I said, it applies in every aspect of life as well. To talk about the sugar aspect a little bit more, I'd love to hear from you if there are ways to make it very low sugar or to fully remove um, the sugar. I know that the sugar is largely fermented out during the process of brewing kombucha, um, but I also know there's a lot of movements right now like keto or low carb where people are consciously trying to avoid sugar. So is that possible to do? Is it is it possible to make a low sugar kombucha?
1: Absolutely. It is possible. Now, the flavor isn't as rich. And that's because the sugar is not for you. The sugar is nutrients for the organisms that are fermenting the tea and and sugar and turning it into those healthy acids. Now, here's the other thing to consider. When we, again, we say sugar and we think table sugar, which is sucrose. And sucrose is a disaccharide. That means it has both uh, fructose and glucose bound up together in that molecule in the fermentation process for kombucha, those organisms, the yeast is creating an enzyme that splits that molecule in two. And so what what you end up with in kombucha is uh, fructose, glucose, and a little bit of sucrose remains as well. However, those sugars have a lower glycemic impact than if you were consuming table sugar. And Definitely, I understand the the push to uh, reduce sugar content, but I also say, well, in what source? What, what is the source of your sugar? Are you getting sugar in your diet through high fructose corn syrup? Are you getting it in your diet through a chemical made in the lab like aspartame, or are you getting it from a grass that's been grown for five thousand years? And yes, there is a processing step to sugar, but it's also what form are we receiving it in our bodies? It's also that fermented form. And then lastly, I would recommend if you're making kombucha at home, no less than three quarters of a cup sugar per gallon, Um, less than that. And you tend to have a flat flavor. The fermentation doesn't really happen as it should. You get poor scoby growth and you also miss out on your fizz.
0: Got it. Okay. That's such a great explanation. And on that note, let's talk homebrew safety and the best way to make kombucha because I know there have also been concerns about uh, if it's done incorrectly, there can be contamination or bacteria that's not supposed to be there. So you have extensive experience with this. Um, Walk us through what people need to know if they are trying to make their own and especially to fit a lower sugar profile or some very specific thing they're trying to accomplish.
1: I mean, like any food uh, that you're making at home, cleanliness. You just want to have a nice sanitary environment. And think about this, right? Kombucha and, you know, sauerkraut, all of these foods have been with human beings for thousands of years And we lived in conditions that very much do not resemble the way in which we live today. They were, you know, what we would consider dirtier or messier. We live closer to the earth. And, you know, some might say we had a stronger bacterial force field at that point in time. And now we have a weaker one because we're not in contact with those organisms as frequently. So the most important thing is going to be sanitation in your kitchen. And it's normal sanitation. We're not talking about wearing a hazmat suit or, you know, getting out the bleach or anything like That This is the really awesome thing about all fermented foods and that is they create acids that prevent microbes and pathogens from growing. Now they're also a food, just like any other. And so how does food tell you it's not safe to consume? More often than not, it grows mold. So again, when you're working with kombucha, remember it's a food. And so if you see mold, that's an indicator that you should not be consuming that product or there's something wrong in the environment. You don't have the temperature dialed in or your inputs aren't appropriate. Um, You know, for example, people will try to ferment with stevia, which is not a fermentable sugar, and that can lead to mold right off the bat. You might try to brew in an environment that's too cold. Kombucha likes a temperature range of 75 to 85, with 80 being the sweet spot. And if we are too cold, sometimes it can still work, but we'll get not as good of a flavor. But oftentimes it will go to mold, especially if it's too cold early on in the process. And so... Just keeping in mind that what we're consuming is food and it communicates with us the same way other foods do is a great reminder. And in fact, um, the acid profile in kombucha, not only the low pH, but the specific organic acids kill pathogens on contact. So brewing kombucha at home is actually safer than Preparing some other types of food that could be more susceptible to bacteria, for example, you know, a raw chicken or raw milk or things like that, which can sometimes have organisms that are not desirable and that you can't see. Spinach sometimes has E. coli. You don't even know it does. Uh, I'm not trying to make people afraid of their food by by any stretch of the imagination, but maybe rinse it in some kombucha before you use it and that will be better. But long story short, making kombucha at home is incredibly safe. It's been done for thousands of years and it already has those defense mechanisms built in. Of course, if you see mold, toss everything and start over.
0: And you touched on another good point that I want to just make sure we explicitly answer, which is that question of, you know, do you actually need sugar to brew kombucha? And then every follow-up question, which is, what about stevia or maple syrup or honey or coconut sugar, et cetera, et cetera. So what can be used to brew kombucha and what do we need to stick to to make sure it is safe?
1: You know, this is the great thing about the kombucha SCOBY. It's flexible technology. So, originally it was thought it was only black tea and sugar, and we have come to discover there are a variety of teas and herbs. You can even make caffeine free kombucha using things like rooibos or um, herbs and flowers and things, hibiscus, ginger, things like that, in primary fermentation instead of tea provided the herb or the plant you're using has enough nutrients for the culture, you'll end up with it reproducing over time. In terms of sugar sources, they have to be fermentable. So like your stevia, your monk fruit, those are non-fermentable sugars. And so they're not going to be, they're not going to sustain the organisms because they don't have the nutrients they need. Can use maple sugar, coconut palm sugar? Absolutely. Just keep in mind that when your sugar has a higher um, mineral content, that that can actually overstimulate the yeast and cause it to sour more quickly. So if you are experimenting with these different sugar types, you'll just wanna taste more frequently. So you're harvesting it at a point when it has a flavor that's still appealing to you before it gets too acid heavy. And I've experimented with a wide variety of sugars. Now, if you want to use raw honey specifically, there is a culture unique to raw honey that's a, a relative of kombucha, and it's called jun or jun, J-U-N. Uh, we say jun rhymes with fun, but you can call it June. It's potato, potato, really. And that culture is uniquely evolved to harmonize with the organisms in the raw honey. So for example, when we give sugar to our Jun and raw honey to our kombucha, they both go to mold right away because they're not adapted to work with those different organisms. But people who love raw honey, who are turning to that instead of sugar, definitely grab a Jun culture as that's a really fun way to ferment your honey. And it has a lovely light floral flavor. It gets a little bubblier. You can do it at a slightly cooler temperature because the glucose and fructose are already free flowing in the honey versus in the sugar where they're all bound up in the sucrose. And so it's a great alternative to kombucha if you're looking to try something else.
0: Yeah, it, there's so many options when it comes to fermenting things. And, and remembering, like you said, these are foods, not crazy supplements. And they are things that people have been making for years and years and years and years. And so, um, and I know you guys have resources at like both educational and the supplies needed to make all of these different types of ferments. And of course, there'll be links to those in the show notes. This episode is brought to you by Alatura Naturals Skincare. You guys loved the founder, Andy, when he came on this podcast to talk about his own healing journey after a tragic accident caused massive scarring on his face. From this experience, he developed some, some of the most potent and effective natural skincare options from serums and masks and a lot of products in between. The re- results are super visible on his perfectly clear skin that is free of scars. I personally love the mask and I use it a couple times a week and I often use their gold serum at night to nourish my skin while I sleep. All of their products have super clean ingredients and they really work. Andy is absolutely dedicated to creating the highest quality products possible and it shows. You can check them out at alatoranaturals.com forward slash wellness mama and use the discount code wellness to get 20% off. So again, that's Naturals, So A L I forward wellnessmama and the discount code wellness to save 20%. This podcast is sponsored by Thrive Market, a company that I have known and loved since its very beginning. The goal of Thrive Market is to make real food affordable for everyone, and now they help their half a million members, including me, get organic foods that we love delivered to our door for less. Think of it as an online combination of Costco and Whole Foods with tons of organic, allergy friendly, paleo, vegan, keto, and other options. Their annual membership earns you free gifts and guaranteed savings. And this is one of my favorite parts. An annual membership that you pay for also sponsors a free membership for a family in need. So you'll get 25 to 50% off top brands, And as a tip, I always look at the new Thrive Market brand products that provide an even bigger discount on their 500 plus high quality products. You can check out all of their products and save an additional 25% on your first order by going to thrivemarket.com forward slash WM. So that's thrivemarket.com forward slash WM. For wellness mama. And if you're already a member, still go to thrivemarket.com forward slash WM and check out because Thrive often runs deals of the day and gifts with purchase. So even if you're already a member, you can often get free products when you shop on certain days. So always keep an eye out for those and always check out the new deals at thrivemarket.com forward slash WM. I want to switch gears a little bit too, though, because I mentioned that you also have this mission when it comes to kombucha and the education side. So um, I want to talk about a few aspects of that. First of all, what is the KBI? Explain what that is and, and all the stuff you do within the industry to advance the kombucha industry.
1: Absolutely. So our mission is changing the world one gut at a time. And even though I speak Mandarin, Chinese, and Spanish, those weren't my majors in college, Uh, I'm not going to be able to communicate with all one point, however many billion people there are on this planet. So we've always understood that if we create great educational resources while also partnering with the industry, that is how our mission is going to be executed in the world. Um, through symbiosis, through collaboration. That's what our culture is all about. And so when I first started my blog in 07, I really reached out to the commercial producers who were near me, GTs and House Kombucha up in Northern California. And I really wanted to highlight these brands. I was so excited about Kombucha. I just wanted everybody to know where they could get a local brand. And that love of the industry and the culture And the ferment itself has really grown into Kombucha Brewers International. So in 2010, just to give a little history lesson here, um, Whole Foods removed all of the kombucha from its shelves due to the trace amounts of alcohol potentially present. And that, of course, created a huge hole in the industry. And what Alex and I recognized was that there wasn't a central place that could help educate people about what kombucha is. There was an essential place for kombucha producers to come together and tackle issues together. And that's where the seed for Kombucha Brewers International uh, was planted. And in 2014, we started with KombuchaCon. It's our annual conference. We've now had six conferences to date. Every year they're bigger and bigger. This year we had over 400 attendees representing 17 countries around the world and over a hundred kombucha brands. And, you know, I think it's a testament. I I can't take credit for all of it. But, you know, uh, I think a lot of people started homebrewing with our supplies. Our book, The Big Book of Kombucha, has has helped them really fine tune their process. The Trade Association then gives them resources they need in order to um, have an opportunity to to nutrify their communities, to work in something that, I'm not going to lie, it's a labor of love, emphasis on the labor. But if you're someone who really wants to give back to your community, and that's the really neat thing about our industry is almost every producer is someone who had a health challenge. Kombucha helped them in some way. And that is what has inspired them to want to bring this product to their community. And of course, some brands grow larger. We've seen the Health Aids, the Hums, the Brew Doctors, along with GTs become national brands. But then what's really unique about our industry are all the small regional producers, which you really don't see in food as much. Like You don't really see regional uh, startups as much except in the fermented food space. And so We're really excited to help stabilize the industry through our lobbying efforts. We have the Kombucha Act, which is in Congress and the Senate right now. It's designed to eliminate taxes on kombucha if it goes up to one and a quarter percent alcohol by volume. And as I mentioned earlier, these trace amounts of alcohol are not intoxicating. However, due to the way the laws are written in our country, if it ever goes above half a percent, which it can sometimes do if it's not kept in a cold supply chain because it's a living food, right? If you were to test a banana, its nutrient profile would be X on one day and Y on another day. And so just like a piece of fruit, because it's a living food, it can naturally change. And so this law is designed to eliminate any sort of tax liability that might be required as a result of these slight shiftings of the trace amounts of alcohol. And we're also working on standard of identity, which is to define kombucha and what it is, not just as an end product, but also as a process. And, you know, part of the page we're taking is looking at, say, orange juice, right? It used to be orange juice. In our minds, you took an orange, you squeezed it, there's the juice, that's orange juice. Of course, over time, what we saw is there were juices from concentrate, there was orange drink. And um, it took lawsuits in order to force the orange juice industry to say, hey, this product is from concentrate versus this is a fresh squeeze. And as you and I know, um, when when you're in the grocery store choosing between a variety of options, you're gonna pay a different price for something that you believe is fresh squeezed versus something that's from concentrate. And so we really wanna get transparent with consumers so they understand why is this kombucha 250 and this one is $5. So they can make that informed decision. Do I wanna go with a product that maybe is added probiotics with a flavor and a concentrate, or do I wanna go with The product that's been through a traditional fermentation process that has these nutrients in living form. And so that's just some of the big pieces of work that we're doing right now with Kombucha Brewers International. I'm the president there. Um, Alex is chairman of the board, and I spend probably about a third of my time uh, helming the trade association and uh, growing. We've just been growing like crazy. So it's exciting to see kombucha taking the stage. You know, we really think of it as. A similar trajectory that yogurt followed where our generation grew up buying yogurt at the grocery store and having it as a regular basis. It was in our grocery carts and now it's a multi-billion dollar industry. Well, our parents' generation—they had to make their own yogurt on their counter, right? All these crazy hippies and their countercultures that then end up mainstream. Well, that's what's happening with kombucha. Uh, traditionally, it's been those, you know, crazy hippies or whomever—those people seeking um, natural health alternatives—and now we're starting to see kombucha really picking up in the mainstream. And in fact, it's the fastest-growing uh, functional beverage segment for the last several years, running with velocities of 30 to 50 percent growth year after year, depending on the channel. Um, so that was a lot of uh, <laughs> nerdy speak, so to, so to speak, about uh, the kombucha industry, but we really are, are passionate about that mission. And uh, of course, having local options is a key way to introducing people to kombucha because not everybody's going to start making it right off the bat.
0: Yeah, and it sounds like you're doing this work on a large scale, helping educate about what those different terms mean. For people who are listening and are just, at this point, consumers and going to the grocery store, for instance, how can they know if they're getting a good kombucha or not?
1: Absolutely. So words you want to look for are raw and pasteurized you know, as much as we're used to having clear beverages, floaty things in your kombucha is actually a good thing because that indicates those strands of culture means that it's alive. Um, you're looking for kombuchas that aren't shelf stable. If they're not in the refrigerated section, it's probably because they're pasteurized. Although we do know some pasteurized kombuchas live in the refrigerated section because um, they want to be perceived like their raw counterparts. And so really, you know, doing your diligence, reading the labels, some brands do add probiotics and those are listed on the label whenever that's added. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean it's better or worse. It just means there's additional probiotics in, in the beverage. And part of that is because although we know kombucha's is probiotic, those organisms haven't been put on an official list. And so to prevent lawsuits, this country very much enjoys lawsuits, uh, people will add probiotics to their kombucha as well. But at farmer's market, you know, going to your farmer's market, finding your local producer, getting a fresh glass on tap, those are really great ways to find those types of kombuchas. If it's a little tangy, that's great. It means it has that sour power present and you'll know it's real kombucha by the way it makes your body feel. I I truly believe the the only reason that GT was able to create an industry single-handedly you know, I personally think kombucha tastes amazing, but not everybody does on first sip. However, you're body can't help but have a physiological reaction to those healthy acids and when you look at the standard american diet and how depleted it is of nutrients in a living form it makes sense that when you consume something and just this year at KombuchaCon, we had a research um, a very small pilot study done on humans showing that within a couple hours it really does change those inflammation markers reducing inflammation helping with digestion so When you've been taking a bunch of pills or not feeling that great, and all of a sudden you can grab a product off the shelf and it has that immediate reaction, this is why kombucha has staying power. This is why kombucha isn't a fad. It's a really nutritious food because people feel the way it works in their body.
0: And another thing that I know is uh, in the works with you or that you have been involved in, um, what is the Kombucha Act? Explain what you guys are doing with that.
1: Yeah, exactly. So the Kombucha Act is that piece of legislation I mentioned. It's in the House and the Senate. And that bill is going to raise the so it, it goes into the Internal Revenue Code. Now, it doesn't change the definition of alcoholic beverage, but it states that um, for kombucha alone, taxation would not start until the beverage is at a one and a quarter percent ABV or higher. And let me just break down the kombucha industry a little bit. So we have our under 21 kombuchas. These are half a percent and lower kombuchas. We have our traditional kombucha. So um, that'll be like a GT's classic or um, a wild kombucha out of Iowa City. You know These are brands that are fermenting a traditional kombucha, but it's probably topping out at around 2% ABV. So again, non-intoxicating, but above that half a percent um, defined limit for non-alcoholic beverage. And then we have hard kombucha. So these have really picked up in popularity in recent years. Things like Boochcraft, Unity Living Vibration, Kyla. Um, these are um, kombuchas to which... Additional yeast, higher alcohol-loving yeast have been added in order to create a high alcohol beverage. And so some people might say, well, won't it be confusing to the consumer? And the short answer is no, because those who are making hard kombuchas are doing so deliberately with the purpose to intoxicate. And those beverages are all subject to um, the excise taxes. You know, people who are making the low alcohol, um, non-intoxicating kombuchas, this just gives the small amount buffer zone. So that, like I said, if these natural changes occur due to transportation or supply chain issues, our our producers won't be penalized uh, because the product has shifted slightly. So it just sort of gives that relief to folks, gives them peace of mind. um, Because right now, what people have had to do is really shift their process in order to try to create this under half a percent um, type of product. And the reason for that is because the laws of nature and the laws of man often don't harmonize. And that's just where we're at right now. We're a little out of harmony with each other, but these trace amounts, again, they're not intoxicating and they have this uh, positive net effect on the body. And so, We're confident. And and everyone we've talked to has said, oh, this is really common sense. This is just removing red tape. So we really are getting positive bipartisan support on the matter uh, when we're able to go in through our hill climbs and meetings in person and by phone with all the different, you know, stakeholders in the process. And so right now, it's finding the right piece of legislation for it to be associated with. Of course, it has to be tax related since it's a tax issue. And as you know, things in Washington are a little um, up in the air, so to speak. And so that makes business as usual, a little tougher to execute. So, uh, so we've been engaging in this process for a couple of years, but every time, you know, it just deepens our connections to government, which is so vital for industry. I think it's as consumers, we sometimes forget how important it is to have allies in government because they can help us through the red tape.
0: Yeah, and I can only imagine the scale of you know working that, through that on, in Washington. We, I was involved in an effort in where I used to live just to uh, license midwives because home birth was technically illegal, um, and that was a multi-multi year pro- process with a ton of grassroots efforts, and it finally uh, we were able to pass that. But it, I just I understand even on a state level how much can go into that. And so I'm sure on a national level, it's even more to coordinate, but I love that you are doing that and on the front lines working through that. Like you said, I think it does make a lot of sense and it helps consumers to have trust and to have options. And so I'm glad that you guys are doing that. I'll have to stay in touch with the progress on that. I also know, and people now know from this interview, just how busy you are and how many plates you have in the air. So I really appreciate you taking the time to be here today and to educate. And of course, like I mentioned, all of your resources and also all of the supplies for these products are on your website. And there will be links to all of those specifics in the show notes so people can find them and keep learning. Um, But Hannah, thank you so much for being here. This is always so much fun.
1: Oh, my pleasure. It was really great to be here today with you and to share more about kombucha and how far it's come. And uh, yeah, trust your gut. It's really all about listening to your body and that biofeedback. And like you said before, also getting information from practitioners. And um, it's not just Google University. (laughs) It's listening to your body. It's getting um, the right uh, information into your mind so that you can harmonize those two and just feel good again.
0: Absolutely. And thanks to all of you for listening and sharing your time with us today. We're so grateful that you did. And I hope that you will join me again on the next episode of the Wellness Mama podcast. If you're enjoying these interviews, would you please take two minutes to leave a rating or review on iTunes for me? Doing this helps more people to find the podcast, which means even more moms and families can benefit from the information. I really appreciate your time. And thanks as always for listening.